0: Good morning, church family. Uh, Today we read together, our scripture reading is John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. I'm using the New American Standard 1995 edition, and my sermon title today is Pilate's Plight Part 2. As we kind of pick up from last week, Pilate is the Roman governor over Judea, and as we know... Pilate is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And by this time, by the time of our passage in John chapter 19, Pilate knows for certain that Jesus is guiltless of all sin, that he is innocent of all crimes that, is, that are imputed against him. And so Pilate is desperately trying to find a way out of the situation. He's already tried plan B with releasing Barabbas, but today he tries plan C, D, E. And then finally, plan an F. And this is what it says. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scorched him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on his back. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate, confused, said to them, Fine, just take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then the Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered again into the praetorium, the judgment hall of Rome, again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you have no authority over me. Why? Because he is the son of God unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater sin, the Jews and Caiaphas. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts again to release him. He's trying to figure out any way possible to let Jesus go. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, will tell on you. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he capitulates. He brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, noon. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, are you sure? Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered We have no king but Caesar So then Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified Amen, this says the Lord Today we are in Pilate's plight, part two We are continuing in the sixth and final trial of Jesus Before he is hung on a cross to die But the question I would like to start off with this morning Is what, what prevents Pilate? What prevents Pilate? From doing the right thing. Pilate knows. Now he knows that Jesus is completely innocent, that he is guiltless of any charge that is brought before him. So what prevents him from doing the right thing? When he goes forth with plan C, D, E, and finally plan F. Where are his eyes? What is he constantly looking at? Today I title my sermon, Pilate's Plight Part 2. Pilate, who is he? He is the Roman governor over Judea. And we find him, when we pick up at John chapter 19, verse 1, he is stuck between a rock and a hard place. His number one job given to him by Rome is to what? Is to keep the peace. Yet no matter what he tries, he can't satisfy the appetite of the bloodthirsty crowd. So, in John 19, 1-16, Pilate resorts to plan C, D, E, and F, and he finally capitulates, handing Jesus over to be crucified, which we will see next week. But this story is more than just a biography about Pilate. In fact, when I was unpacking this story, looking at it from only a personal application side, I did not see a pair of binoculars. I saw a mirror. Because Pilate's, Plight is something that we face every day between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing the right thing. Pilate knows the right thing to do, but struggles to do the right thing. James chapter 4 verse 17 says this, To whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. But practically speaking, even in our world, we see Pilate's plight every single day. That we all face what Pilate faces. Between knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing. Pilate knows to release Jesus. He knows that Jesus is innocent. In fact, Pilate says six different times that Jesus is guiltless. He is innocent. That there is no charge to bring against him, warranting capital punishment. But Pilate struggles to do the right thing thing. Why? Where are his eyes when he pronounces judgment upon Jesus? But let me just ask you the question, what typically keeps people from obeying the law or obeying the truth? What keeps people from actually obeying, doing what they know to be right? And think about the parkway, right? The, the speed limit on the parkway says what? 50, okay, 50 miles an hour, which I, we need to write our mayor and have that changed, amen? I don't know why it's 50 miles an hour. It drives me crazy. I go, wait, well, I'm not going to profess my sin. But um, but when, I see, when we see 50 miles an hour, what do we automatically think? That I can drive 55 without getting a ticket, Right? I, that's right. Amen Okay but uh, and then, I, and then I think about just the human condition of, of knowing the right thing to do But not really wanting to actually do it I think about my daughters They are awesome I love my kids I have a one year old A three year old And a five year old And hopefully my daughters have a good reputation around here I think they're great and perfect Because I'm a dad You know with the girls um, but we are all imperfect. PKs are under more pressure than other kids. It' a bit unfair, but moving on. But for, what, for whatever reason, my children, they know the right thing to do, but struggle to do it. Right? I mean, think about their car seats. It drives me crazy. They know the truth. They know that we're going to put them in that car seat. But what do they always do? Parents in the room, can you relate? They always rebel. They never actually want to get in the car seat. They know that we're going to tell them to do it. They know that the car seat's there to protect them. But they oftentimes resist actually doing the truth. What keeps my children? What keeps us? What keeps Pilate here? Knowing the truth but not wanting to do the truth. Where are their eyes in Pilate's eyes? Pilate's issue, my kids' issue is an everybody issue. We all at times are pilot. We all at times, maybe even every day, we are confronted with the truth that we know the right thing. Right? I mean, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably know your Bible. We know what this says to do. But we struggle, oftentimes, to actually do it. Why? What is the root cause? I'm going to suggest to you something. That doing the right thing has less to do with emotions, circumstances, or knowledge, but more to do with the truth that we actually see. Doing the right thing boils down to the truth we know and the truth that we actually see and look to. Today I want to diagnose the problem, but then prescribe a solution. So, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Today we are unpacking Pilate's plight, part two. But as we enter the text today, let us kind of remember the setting of our story. Where are we when we enter into John chapter 19, verse one? What time of day is it? It is. It is Good Friday. It is Friday, probably about lunchtime. Okay, right about now. So when we enter into the text in verse 1, it is Friday, probably round between 11 and noon. And what has already happened, as you probably know, Thursday night, the night before, Thursday night at 10 p.m., Jesus concluded, John chapter 13 through 16, the upper room discourse. Jesus concluded the Passover meal and the discourse there, and then he left the upper room. He walks down the steps. He exits the upper room in John chapter 14, verse 31, and he heads through the streets of Jerusalem, seeing grapevines, teaching his disciples final lessons before he is arrested by Judas. He is heading through the streets of Jerusalem, and he heads up a Mount of Olives, up a little hill outside of the city of Jerusalem, and there he waits on top of the Mount of Olives for Judas' snare. And then at 2 a.m., what happens? Judas shows up with his... Roman cohort sent by Pilate of all people to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus is arrested by Judas. And in the, and the Roman cohort, he is marched down the Mount of Olives. And then he is tried before three different Jewish trials. Between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., he is the defendant in three different trials. The first trial is before Annas. The second trial is before Caiaphas. And the third trial is before the Sanhedrin. And what is the only charge that they can bring against him? blasphemy. And Jesus would be guilty if it were not true. But Jesus is the Son of God. They convict. They indict Jesus based on who He actually was. That Jesus is the Son of God. That He is God Himself. And He has been proclaiming that throughout the Gospel of John and all of the I Am statements. They don't believe Jesus' claim despite Jesus proving it over and over and over. Just Just think about all of the ways that Jesus has proven to be the Son of God to this point. Just think about the miracles in the Gospel of John itself. You have the man that is healed beside the pool of Bethesda. You have the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus took a happy meal and he fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. What else did he do? He walked on water. And oh, by the way, he has fulfilled every single messianic prophecy to this point. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the sanhedrin all of them are completely blind to the truth that he is not just some crazy guy who blasphemed the name of God, but that he is God himself. And what blinds them to the truth? Their own pride. They're not willing just to look at the evidence and to come to the conclusion that Jesus is not just a crazy man, but that he is God himself. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, and the Sanhedrin are blinded to the truth by pride. Some of us here today, even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are blinded to the truth by pride. God, I want to follow you, but I don't want to... That's pride That's looking internally Looking at ourselves And what we want So you yeah, have Thursday night at 10 Jesus leaves the upper room John fourteen thirty one. Friday morning at 10, 2 a.m. He is arrested by Judas Between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. He is the defendant In three Jewish trials At 6 a.m. Jesus is taken before Pilate It says that he was early That word early means at sunrise Jesus is taken before Pilate So that he, Pilate could kill him Of capital charges and then at noon, Jesus is sentenced to die, and then by Friday evening the same day, at 6 p.m., Jesus is dead. So all of within 20 hours, he goes from being arrested to being dead on the cross. And today we see the main character, or the second character, I should say. We see Pontius Pilate, and who is this guy? Who is the guy that slams the gavel in the judge's bench, declaring Jesus to be killed on a cross? Pilate is who? He is the Roman governor over Judea. And what did we talk about last week? He is on thin ice with his employer. He is afraid that only one more insurrection, one more riot will cause him to fall fall out of favor with Rome. Pilate is really is morbidly terrified that Israel will rebel one more time, causing Pilate to be demoted and probably to be decapitated. Who is Pilate? He is on edge. He is nervous. He is scared. One more rebellion will find him out of favor with Rome. Who is Pilate? He is impulsive, vacillating, and inwardly searching for the answer to the question, what is truth? And what is Pilate's number one goal? This is very important when we enter into the text in John chapter 19. I've I've said this over and over again. What is Pilate's number one goal? To keep the peace. That no matter what happens, Pilate is doing his best to cause Israel not to have another riot. Right? Amen. So keep the peace. But he also knows that Jesus is innocent, but he can't seem to satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd. And that's where we pick up today. Pilate's already tried plan one to just declare Jesus is innocent and release him. He's tried plan two with Barabbas and Jesus. He, saw, he thought to himself, surely they'll choose Barabbas, who's a murderer and a thief and an insurrectionist, to be crucified instead of Jesus. And they don't. And then in the text we see today, if you have your... Bible in front of you I'm going to kind of give you the outline John chapter 19 verses 1 through 7 we see Pilate's plan D 8 through 12 we see Pilate's plan E and then 13 through 16 we see Pilate's plan F or he forfeits to the crowd but B is Barabbas and D is in our text today so any close observers anyone online notice maybe have noticed that I skipped plan C Pilate tries one more thing that's not mentioned in the Gospel of John. He tries one more thing to eradicate himself of all responsibility to actually declare Jesus to be guilty. What does Pilate do that's not included in the Gospel of John? Pilate is trying to find any way to rid himself of Jesus, anyone else to deal with this problem. So according to Luke chapter 23, Pilate releases Barabbas. He then finds out that Herod... Is in town for the Passover. He's king over over Galilee. So he finds out. Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Herod's jurisdiction, and then so instead, Pilate just instead of actually dealing with the problem, he sends him to Herod for Herod to actually crucify him. Pause. I'm going to hold up for just a second. What does Herod then do? He laughs at Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. Trial one is Honest. Trial two is Caiaphas. Trial three is the Sanhedrin. Trial four is Pilate number one. Trial five is Herod. And then trial number six, Jesus reappears before Pilate. And nothing that Pilate has tried to this point to be rid of Jesus has worked. So then Pilate, this vacillating man, this man who is more terrified of his employer and the crowd before him than he is of the God of the universe, tries to find a way to satisfy the crowd. And avoid killing Jesus. Notice plan D. Verse 1 of chapter 19. This is Pilate's plan D. He's trying to figure out a way to appease the crowd and not kill Jesus. Verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Let me just pause right there and just kind of explain this. Pilate's plan D is to have Jesus scourged. In the back of Pilate's mind, maybe this will satisfy the crowd and not have to kill Jesus. Pilate does not want to be guilty of killing an innocent man, so therefore he tries to scourge him. And what is scourging? We don't have a lot of details of actually what this is. But a, uh, I man, I just looked at the gory details of what a scourging actually is and it is just uh, nasty and cruel. It is an inhumane torture. According to Jewish law, there, there was a cap on how many times somebody could be scourged. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says that you are limited to 40 lashings so the Jews, in order not to break the law, would limit it to 39. But here... They're not limited to 39. Here, they're limited by the energy that they actually have. Why? Because it's not Jews scourging Jesus, but it's Romans. The Romans are not underneath Levitical law. So Jesus' punishment would continue until the torturers were either exhausted, the officer decided to stop, or that Jesus was dead. The scourging of the whip would continue on and on and on and on until somebody was winded. What is a scourging? What did Jesus endure? This comes from a commentator. A scourging consisted of being lacerated with a whip that had a short wooden handle to which several leather thongs, each with a jagged piece of bone or metal attached to the end, were fastened. And as a result of the whip, the body would be so torn and lacerated that the muscles, the bones, the veins, or even internal organs would be exposed. So horrible was this punishment that Roman citizens were exempt. The scourging Christ endured left him too weak. To carry the cross piece of his cross all the way to Calvary. Pilate hoped that this brutalizing of Jesus' short of death would satisfy the bloodthirsty mob. Think about what Jesus actually endured here in John chapter 19 verse 1. Jesus to this point is bruised and battered. His face has been punched and slapped. And then all of a sudden, in John chapter 19, verse 1, these Roman soldiers take him and they tie him to a stump, leaving his back completely exposed. And these Roman soldiers take this whip that has bone and metal attached to it, and they would take it and whip him. Then the hooks of glass, the hooks of metal, the hooks of bone would stick into Jesus' back. They would hook it and then rip out his skin, lacerating him to pieces. So much so that his internal organs would be exposed. What manner of love is this? Because why did Jesus endure? Think about about Matthew chapter twenty-seven. What does he say to his disciples that he could call down twelve legions of angels? He didn't have to endure. He could have called, or the first last year, he could have called a legion of angels and freed him, and killing everybody. But he endured. Why? He endured all the scourging. Why? Isaiah fifty-three verse five. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. Christ endured the scourging so that by his death, we are healed. His scourging and death paid the price for my sin. Jesus' death was the only sacrifice sufficient to pay for the Father's hatred of sin And the Father's demand for justice for mankind's wretched sin And Christ was our payment His blood was the money in a sense And His resurrection was our receipt, was our guarantee That payment was in full But notice the continuation of Pilate's plan D Verse 2 and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail. Notice the word hail. Hail, king of the Jews. And to give him slaps in the face. The word hail here in verse 2 is the Greek verb kairo. It literally means to Rejoice. And it's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Think about, put that word there. What are the soldiers saying? Rejoice, King of the Jews, as they whip him and place on him a crown of thorns. It can also mean prosperity and long life. What are the soldiers doing? They are openly mocking Christ. It's not bad enough that the soldiers tied Jesus to a stump and lacerated his skin to the point where his internal organs would be exposed. But now they find a bush with thorns. They twist together a crown and they place it upon his head. Thorns introduced at the fall, representing the introduction of sin and sin placed upon Jesus' head for he only is worthy to pay for the sins of the world twist a, row, a, cr- a, th- a crown of thorns, and then they place on him a purple robe, the color of royalty, to mock him. And then notice Pilate's verdict. Verse 4. Pilate then came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate announces six different times that Jesus is completely innocent and guiltless. But let me pause. Let me pause right there. Why is that important? Why is it important for Jesus to be innocent and guiltless of all sin? Pause. Hold that thought. Then notice the continuation, verse 5. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and, and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! We're not satisfied! Pilate then said to him, Take him yourselves. I don't want anything to do with him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. What is Pilate's job? It is to keep the peace. He tried Barabbas. He tried Herod, he tried scourging him and nothing has worked. Pilate is stuck in a corner between a rock and a hard place. But let me just say this, where are his eyes? Pilate knows what he should do. He knows the truth. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but he struggles to do it. Why? But I want you to notice in your text, verse 8. This is the turning point, in my opinion, of Pilate's life. This is the most important moment in Pilate's life. Verse 8 of John chapter 19. Pilate, for the first time, truly understands the truth. And then, because notice how he responds to their reaction in verse 7. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement that Jesus is declaring to be the Son of God, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The word afraid there is where we get the word phobia. He is terrified. Why? Why? Put it this way, if Pilate just thought that Jesus was just a wackadoo, if Pilate just thought that Jesus was just a crazy man in the desert, he would not be afraid. But for the first time, Pilate is no longer blind to the truth, but he actually begins to understand who Jesus truly is, that he actually is the Son of God. To this point, the opinions of others have blinded him to the truth. The opinions of Rome, his employers, the crowds, his wife, all of that has blinded him to the truth. And to this point, he has been warned by his wife, by the crowds, by Caiaphas, by his own intellect. And finally, the truth has gotten through to Pilate. He knows that Jesus is something different and special. But let me just say something. Knowing the truth, knowing the truth about Jesus changes nothing, amen? It is believing the truth that changes everything. There are a lot of people in churches today, in pews around the world, that merely know the truth of Christ, but have never trusted in the truth of Christ. So many people are like Pilate that they are blinded to the truth of the gospel. And Pilate, for the first time, I begin realizing. So Pilate, okay. So Pilate wants to keep the peace. He wants to appease the crowd, and he wants to release Jesus. That's really his goal. So then Pilate comes up with a plan E, verse 19, excuse me, verse 9. And he entered into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Let me pause. What is Pilate doing here? He is saying, help me, help you. Give me something. Give me anything to let you go. Verse 11. Jesus answered, you have no authority over me. Why? Because he is the son of God. Unless it has been given to you from above for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Speaking of Caiaphas and the crowds. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews found out, cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. What does he say? I will cattle on you. We will tell Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. What is Pilate's plan E? He tries one more thing. Anything. He tries to quietly sneak Jesus out the back door. He tries quietly to release him. But the crowds find out and they then cause a stir. Pilate's trying everything. He's tried to declare his innocence, he's tried Barabbas, he's tried to let somebody else handle it named Herod, he's tried punishing him, he's tried quietly releasing him, and nothing has worked. Pilate is in a corner with no way out other than just doing the truth, doing what he knows to be right. He knows that Jesus is innocent and still he has him crucified. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Let me just say something. In every instance, in every plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, and plan E, every attempt that Pilate has made to this point, where are his eyes every time he he fails? His eyes are down. All he sees are the crowds, and all he sees is that they are upset. All he sees is the pressure from Rome to keep the peace. And Pilate fails underneath the opinion and weight of other people. Friends, let me just say something real quick. So many times, we are, sometimes are blind to the truth, but sometimes we, are, we do not do the truth. Why? Because of the opinions of other people. What will my boss think if I do the right thing? What will my wife think if I do the right thing? What will my children think if I do the right thing? What will this person think if I do the right thing? That's Pilate here. What is Rome? What are the crowds? What would they think? And then notice verse 13, Pilate capitulates. He just planned out if he forfeits. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat, notice this part, he sat on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabatha. The pavement, or Gabatha is the tribunal, it's the judge's bench in modern day. This is where Pilate would slam the gavel and pronounce judgment. And now was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon when he sentenced Jesus. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king, verse 15. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king one more time, please? And Pilate, chief priests, answered, We have no king but Caesar. The irony of this statement. Verse 16, So he handed him over to be crucified. This part, I see the turmoil in Pilate's soul and his heart. He, find, he is struggling to keep the peace, but he knows what needs to be done. He knows that Jesus is innocent, yet he struggles to do it because of the opinions of other people. And finally, Pilate capitulates. He sits down on the judge's bench, slams the gavel, and declares Jesus to be guilty and to be crucified. There comes a point in time... When we are confronted with the right thing to do, where we must make a choice, where we must make a choice to do what is right or do what is wrong. And in the time you make that choice, you sit in that seat making a decision. Let me just say something real quick. We all face what Pilate did between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. Amen. We all struggle with this dilemma. But let me just ask a real personal question. You don't have to answer this. You don't have to confess. This is not Catholicism, okay? I don't have my little booth or whatever. Okay. Um, that would be weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> what is an area of your life that you know the right thing to do? That the Lord has revealed his truth to you? That you know the right thing to do, but you're struggling to actually do it? I want you to kind of put a face, or put an object, or put a thought in your mind for that particular th- thought. What is an area of your life that you know is the right thing to do, but you struggle to actually do it? What prevents us from doing the right thing? What is preventing you from doing the right thing? I'm going to pause. And I'm going, to put a, I'm, going to, I'm going to call a timeout real quick, and I'm going to kind of jump off the track onto something else that's running parallel to this passage. I want to talk about theologically something significant here. Why is Pilate's plight, part one and part two, important? What, what's the significance of these trials? You know, a couple weeks ago I mentioned that not only will we unpack the story, which we've already done, but I also want to unpack the importance of the story, Why is Pilate's plight, part one and part two, significant? What does this passage show theologically? There are three pillars that we have in Christology, and all of them are equally important. His person, his purpose, and his perfection. His person, who is Christ Jesus, He is, as we unpack the gospel, He is prophet, priest, king, God, son of God, creator, Messiah, only begotten, fully God, fully man. What is His purpose? We talked about that in the theology month. Jesus is the executor of the Father's will in creation and redemption, but His person and His purpose are valueless without His perfection. He cannot die and satisfy the ransom for my soul if He sinned even one time. But again and again and again and again, Pilate declares him, what, innocent of all charges, innocent of any guilt. Why is that significant? I'm, I'm reading through the Bible, um, and I'm a little bit behind, so, hey, you know, anyways, I'll catch up, hopefully. Um, but but I, I was reading through the book of Leviticus. and and the Levitical law, and all of the sacrifices the Jews were told to do. And I was just reading in the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus, and guess what it says ten times? A lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish. Why? Only in the Old Testament, only a lamb without blemish is sufficient to pay for their sin. It's the same way with us. Only the Lamb of God, who has no blemish or sin, is able to pay for the sins of the world. We focus on His person, we focus on His purpose, but we often overlook His perfection. But without His perfection, His person and purpose are useless to us. We cannot be redeemed by a Savior that sinned even one time. But He is perfect, and He's able to carry the sins of the world. I know I'm running late today, guys. I'm I'm on a bunch of soapboxes today. But just listen to these verses. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who can be tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26 For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteous of God in him. 1 Peter chapter 2 He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth... And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 7. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. This passage unmistakably, the end of John 18 and John 19, we have one theological premise that is on the surface that bubbles up six different times that Jesus is absolutely guiltless of all sin. Therefore, he is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world for the Father placed upon him the iniquity of us all. Back to Pilate. I want you to think about Pilate juxtaposed to Jesus. Pilate knew the right thing to do, but didn't do it. Jesus knew the right thing and did it despite his innocence. Jesus knew he had to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He knew that he had to be scourged by his scourges. We are healed, Isaiah chapter 53. He knew that he had to endure. Jesus knew the right thing and did the right thing despite his innocence. And what is the difference between the two? Obviously, there's a major difference between Pilate and Jesus. One has original sin, one doesn't. But what is just the, particularly in this passage, what is the main difference between Pilate and and Jesus between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. I propose, Pilate knows the right thing to do. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but where are his eyes? What is he looking at? Pilate cares more for the opinions of other people and the opinions of his boss than he does for the sovereign creator of the universe. Let me just speak. Let me just... into your hearts and minds. Let me just talk. I've already mentioned... We all, we all, including this guy, this guy appears doubly charged, okay? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such you will incur a stricter judgment. James chapter 3, verse 1. Okay. This guy up here, oftentimes we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. Why? And when we fail to do the right thing, even though we know it, where are our eyes? Pilate, where are his eyes? They're on the crowd. They're on Rome. Think about Caiaphas. Think about the scribes. Where are their eyes? Their eyes are on themselves. They are too prideful to admit that they were wrong. But where are Jesus' eyes? Jesus knows the truth and does the truth despite his innocence. Why? Because he looks to the Father and looks to the Father's will. Will we yield to the opinions of other people? Will we yield to pride? Will we yield to the influence of other people? Will we yield to the impulses of the flesh and the arrows of the enemy when confronted with the right thing to do? Or will we live out the truth? Will we look up to what the Father wants when we are confronted with the right thing to do? I'm going to close with a passage that kind of summarizes all of this. It says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for he considered who has endured by such hostility by sinners against themselves that we would not grow weary and lose heart. When Jesus is scorched, when Jesus is crucified, when Jesus dies, are his eyes the entire time. His eyes are on to the Father's will. When we are confronted with knowing what to do and struggling to do it, let us think about what the Father's will is in that time. Before I close, if you do not know Christ Jesus as Savior, He's guiltless of charge. He was guiltless so He could be sufficient payment for your sin. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, perhaps you just know the truth. Those online, perhaps though you know the truth, but you've never believed the truth, you've never been born again, you've never been changed, you've never been in a new creation, believe and be saved. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, what, a, what a deep and rich passage. There's so much going on here with culture, original language, and, and theologically. Uh, And Lord, I just pray that we would avoid the trap of Pilate, that we are so focused on the opinions of other people that we fail to do what we know is right. And that goes for me as well. And Lord, we thank you for a Savior whose person and purpose is made clear throughout the Gospel of John and his perfection is on the full display in John chapter 19. Our Savior was guiltless, innocent of charge of any sin and any wrongdoing and he is the only one sufficient to pay for the sins of the world for a perfect lamb must have been sacrificed. Lord, I just thank you, man. What what a magnificent Savior that we have. We worship a God that came to us that we do not have to earn our way to heaven that came to us and died in our stead so that we could have eternal life and earthly abundant life Lord I pray that that truth would never grow old I thank you for this church I thank you for the the age ranges we have in this room I thank you for what you are doing I thank you for your grace upon this church I thank you for how you are working and I pray your spirit would lead us and guide us this week take your word and let us be doers We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.